This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. Hey everyone, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving last week. Um, I probably should have given everyone a heads up, but we were taking the week off. Um, For those of you in the US, you understand that it's Thanksgiving week. For you international listeners, apologies, but we will be back every week until the Christmas holiday, that is. This week, my good friend Terry Taylor joins us. Terry and I have known each other for, I would say, about 20 years. Back in the day when I played in Anodyne, our two bands, Anodyne and Caligari, uh, toured. And uh, that's how I got to know Terry. And over the years, our paths have crossed in the extreme metal world. Uh, Terry has become a promoter in various uh, Midwest venues. Terry has embarked on a new venture with his partner, Liz. He is the co-owner of 1313 Mockingbird Lane in Lawrence, Kansas, among other things, which we'll get into during the episode. But I I had a great conversation with Terry. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of really cool insights. Uh, Just over the last couple of years, we've all been dealing with a lot of drama in our lives, a lot of hardships, a lot of struggle. And we talk about those types of things as well as the cool horror toy shop in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, 1313 Mockingbird Lane. Before we get going, I want to shout out all my brothers in arms. Of course, I'm talking about Horror Wolf 666, brought to you by Brandon Legion. And he brings you the best interviews and coverage of horror movies, horror films, with old school, new school, up and comers, and uh, you know, just great people that are involved in making horror films. Tuesday, of course, we have Into the Necrosphere, brought to you by Jackie Smith. It is literally the only music-related podcast that I listen to on a weekly basis. Jackie has some of the best uh, guests, some of the best insights into extreme music, weighted heavily into the black metal world. So if you're into that kind of stuff, definitely check him out on Tuesdays. Of course, uh, today is Wednesday, so it's uh, Everything Went Black. Thursday brings us Necromaniacs, horror podcast. Jeff and and, uh, Mike Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid join me, and we talk about horror films every week. And on Sunday, the Lord's Day, Carl Hikara brings down the hammer with soul knocks for all things esoteric weird and occult i was recently on as a guest and we talked about uh thomas lagotti and um one of our mutually favorite authors so it's that kind of thing you know so check it out definitely highly recommended these are all we're all working together to bring you the best content on a weekly basis if you want to support the show by all means Head over to Patreon, and uh, for as little as $1 a month, you get access to all the bonus content. For $5 a month, 
you get bonus content plus early access to the normal stream. And for $20 a month, you can become a sponsor. And that means you get an ad read, you get all of the bonus content, you get all of the you know early access, that kind of stuff. Uh, over the next few months, I'll be rolling out some more options, more cool stuff, online hangouts, like that kind of thing. I'm uh, going to try to really take advantage of all the things that the Patreon platform has to offer. And uh, it's, a, it's been a lot of fun, as, w- as well as just really cool you know, way to absorb some of the cost of doing the podcast every, every month. But it's been really, really cool connecting with people. And uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff coming in the future. Now, if you guys can do me a favor uh, and leave a review on whatever channel, you know, Apple, Mu- Apple Podcasts, whatever. It helps the visibility of the show. We're just trying to grow, so reaching more people will help us achieve that. Now, onward. Terry, it's great hearing from you. And um, I'm really excited that our mutual friend, <laughs> Stephen Williams, uh, got us back in contact again. And, oh, uh, no joke. Stephen's yeah. amazing. Yeah, he's, he's been on this before, actually. We talked about, you know, 90s stuff and the record business and all that kind of stuff. And um, I was disappointed that I didn't get the, a chance to catch up with you in your town when we played there in Kansas, <laughs> I in know. Lawrence, Kansas. But I, I hinted at to you that there was some stuff going on where I couldn't check, go to the show, uh, go to the store <laughs> yep. rather. But I missed you at the show. But hey, we're we're talking now, so that's good. Yep. But yeah, the, and you know, John Longstreth went to thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane. He did, and it, it's funny. It's a day that I usually. I have a volunteer that does Wednesdays for me because the show is on a Wednesday. And um, I, I usually work at the hospital on a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. So I was actually working at the hospital earlier in the day. But when I rolled up to the show, the first thing I see is Longstreth outside with a 1313 Mockingbird Lane shirt. And I was like, oh, dude, really? That's so cool. Like, so cool, you know? Like, <laughs> um, that's the thing that's so cool, especially I think about Midwest people in general. You know, that's the only reference I have because that's where I've lived is that everyone is so damn supportive of each other. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, I found out from Stephen that you you had the store because uh, when I ran into him when we were in uh, in Minneapolis, he's like, well, I, I know you like all this creepy stuff. So you got to <laughs> check out Terry's store. <laughs> and then he also told me about your episode on the show, A Toy Store Near You. Yep. Now, I'm not familiar with that series, but apparently it's this series that focuses on toy stores. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's supposed to be. It's well, there's a there's a show on Netflix called uh, The Toys That Made Us. That's a really big TV series. And the same company production company behind that um, did a toy store version of it for Amazon Prime. So it's an Amazon Prime TV show. Right. And yeah. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's going to be. Uh, 10 seasons, five episodes a seasons. Um, it's going to be 50 toy stores over eight countries is their goal. Wow. Pretty, yeah. Pretty ambitious. Yes. Yeah. They're on season five right now. So let me ask you, um, you know, we live in a, in a digital world these days and, uh, you know, brick and mortar stores, just even <laughs> opening up any kind of physical location always seems like a huge ordeal so oh what motivated you to open up the store well very very cliff notes 
version is, uh, you know, I started essentially touring when I was 15. Never been in any bands that were huge. Definitely the bands I got into in the last 10, 15 years were much bigger than anything else I'd, I'd ever done. But I'd collected toys over North America, Canada, and Mexico, accumulated a ton of toys. And about 2012, my wife and I found out that we were going to have to do IVF therapy to try and have kids, which is upwards of $100,000 out of pocket. Okay. So, yeah, so one of the biggest things I had in my possession that was like a, a asset was this four huge overflowing storage units of toys that I've accumulated over years. And so I started doing conventions in 2012, all the money going into our IVF fund. And then 2007, it was it just went doing we ended up having kids. It just didn't work out. But I enjoyed selling these toys. And I was still touring and stuff, so I was still buying toys and just being nonsensical about it, just having way more than I need. Because I was like, oh, my buddy uh, my buddy Mike needs this Jason. I'll give it to him for Christmas. And then, you know, Mike yeah. Mike never got it for Christmas. But Terry, <laughs> you know, Terry accumulated 10 Jasons. So typical hoarder collector mentality. But about 2017, my wife suggested we live in a pretty awesome house. It's from... Uh, 1862 it's got a detached garage which was a carriage house back in the day where um like some of the plantation help would would stay or or you know it's like an overflow housing thing um we never use it for a garage but it's a really cool stone building it's like 300 square feet my wife's like hey you're doing so well because i continued doing conventions toy conventions after uh, we decided that, you know, to try and stop having kids. I just enjoyed selling the toys. So we converted our garage or the carriage house into, um, a toy store. Like I set it up, just, I, I had a, the Munster's mansion painted on the floor, mounted racks everywhere. And the second weekend of every month we opened up as a toy store and, um, it was gangbusters. And I don't mean that in a financial sense. I mean, in a communal sense. Like, that's that's awesome, man. So you're doing like yes. this kind of pop up just at your own house. Then, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We even had this. Well, we only have a bakery on one side of us. We have retired KU professors, the university here in town on the other side of us, nothing behind us. And my driveway holds like 10 cars. There's street parking for days. Uh, and we yeah, we started it in February 2017. And just every month it just got better and better. We just it was just like this community built around what we were doing and no one in the area um, during COVID, a lot of this actually popped up where people started trying to do toys out of their house. But at the time, there was nothing around here, no one doing that. And by October, we did a we did like, hey, let's do a cost, costume contest. Winner gets a hundred dollar prize package from from us. And we had over four hundred people come through the quote unquote store, store slash our garage in one day. Wow. And uh, I was like, well shit so this is like really the do. uh the sst of uh of of toy yes. stores it seems like yes okay. yes yes yeah so um we were like oh god and it you know and it got kind of weird because uh i started having people showing up at the house on non-open days you know we're only open the second weekend every month the rest of the time my wife my wife and i are slaving at the hospital doing doing that work and i'm still playing in bands and whatever but like i was working overnights at ku med and my wife calls me at 2 a.m. She's like, hey, uh, there's an Astro van in the driveway pounding on the door that they want to sell you some toys. 
And I was like, uh, well, if they don't leave, call the police. I was trying to get out and and they eventually left, but we were like, uh, we can't be doing this anymore. Having people come to the house. So we're literally, I kind of said this on the episode, we're like literally walking our dogs down the street and we literally see this for rent sign go up in this tiny ass building on the main strip in Lawrence for, for rent signs. So we look in and it's tiny. It's like 240 square feet. It's like your bedroom. And we look in and I take a picture of the sign and I go, and I'm not a risk taker. Like when it comes to money and finances, I can't, I just, when I think of dumping money into something, I just, I have a hard time doing it. But my wife, we got home. My wife's just like, you should call, you should call, you should call. So I called the guy, met with him later that day. We looked at the room and I was like, I don't know. And the room was so small. And I was like, gosh, I don't know what we could do with this. But then he goes, well, there is a basement and we go in the basement. It's 800 square feet. Okay. Okay. Which is bigger than the current store I'm in now. Cause we've moved since that episode premiered. And so I could move like most of my storage in there. And that was the selling point. I was like, holy crap. So I get a 300 square foot retail space with an 800 square foot storage facility in the basement. And it's creepy as all get out. It's a hundred year old, Lawrence, Kansas basement that survived Quantrill's raid. And it's got its bestest lined lead pipes going oh, through the man. basement. It's amazing. Um, and honest to God, I don't, tr- as much as I'm into horror and stuff, I truly don't believe in ghosts because I've never experienced, I want to, but I just have never had a experience, but there was stuff legitimately downstairs that um, I never witnessed happen, but things definitely moved around uh, changed around that. And I was the only person that went down there. So, uh, so there was some creepy stuff that happened in this, in the space, but then, yeah. So then we, that's how we ended up starting the the little store, I guess you could say when we first started in 2018, I guess. Okay. That, so I, I was trying to figure out the time frame because I watched the episode of a toy store near you and yeah, it kind of like, you know, there, I, I realized it was a little bit before the pandemic, but when all that stuff happened, that created a lot of difficulties for you guys, it seems like. Oh, it was, I remember we had just, it's so funny, you know, the pandemic quote unquote was announced or started, you know, in March of what, 2020 mm-hmm. or no, 2000. Yeah. Was it 20? God. It was yeah. 2020. Yep. Yeah. 20. And I remember, cause I don't pay myself at the store. I still work at the hospital to, to pay the bills. Um, the, the, the store was paying for itself. And finally I was looking at my accountant. I was like, Oh, in that February, I remember my accountant was like, yeah, you can actually start giving yourself a little bit of a paycheck, you know, to make you worth, be, you know, I spend 60 hours a week at the store plus another 20 to 30 at home dealing with all the packages and inventory and everything. So it's, it's more than a, it's a double full-time job plus working at the hospital. And, uh, then a couple weeks later, still in February, my wife and I work at different hospitals. I work in a completely different city. She works locally in Lawrence. I work in Topeka, which is 30 minutes away from Lawrence. Yeah. And I remember coming home one day, I was like, hey, because uh, COVID's been around forever. It's like the rhinovirus, which is like your common cold. It used to be. But I was like, so it was no big deal. Someone came in with COVID, no big deal. It's like, oh, you know, it's just like a cold kind of. But I came home, I was like, Liz, do you see an um are you seeing this like kind of people getting COVID, but having it be like a little more serious? She's like, yeah, we're getting a lot of cases. People are sick. And I'm like, same here. So we started requiring masks. The mask mandate started around St. Pat's in most cities. Mm-hmm. We started requiring masks on uh, right around Valentine's day. Okay. And, 
we we thought i remember telling her i was like we're just going to buy masks we'll give them to customers as they come in it'll be like a high flu season this will last for a month and then we'll be fine well you know here we are what three years later (laughs) we're not still requiring masks but but man trying to before covid was announced or i should say people knew how bad it was trying to explain to some people about why i wanted them to wear a mask when they came in my building I mean, I had one guy that he was like stamping his feet. He's like, and this was a regular customer that spent a lot of money. He's like, I ain't, my family and I aren't wearing a mask. I was like, well, look, I'm, I'm in respiratory therapy. I deal with respiratory diseases. There's this new thing. It's kind of contagious. We, we just don't know what's going on. We're doing this for your safety, you know, cause we're working around patients and whatever. And the guy looks at me and just grabs one of my shelves and just, what? just knocks, just shatters the oh, whole shelf man. on the ground like stamping his feet and I'm more of a, I'm not a pacifist per se, but I'm more of a take the high road than the low road. And I looked at him, I was like, well, now I got to clean that up and you still can't come in my store without, without a mask. So he left and, you know, called me some explanatory words, whatever. Check to like August of 2020 dude comes back in with his wife and his family masked and, uh, they bring me a cake and it says, I'm sorry on it. And there, I'm pretty sure his wife was the engineer behind this, but he's like, I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. We, you know, I see now you were just trying to help us. And, you know, I didn't take your expertise And like, I could tell it was super hard for this guy, to, you know, male ego to wow. <laughs> apologize after destroying, you know, some merchandise. So I was like, it's cool, man. You know, I, I get it. These are weird times, especially now. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's but the thing that I really with with all this the mask stuff. It's like I I I just think like my my whole take on it was like regardless of like what you think the you know of the efficiency of that technique is. It's like if sure. someone asks you just to make them more comfortable, why not just comply, man? It's just easier to if like for example, this past summer I went to Necronomicon in Providence, and uh, uh-huh. down here in New York and New Jersey, like. There's no mask mandates now. Sure. They weren't, haven't been for months. So I go to the convention and um, I remember just real quick, I, I got like some email, like, you know, you know, the convention, you know, what, you know, we're all excited for, you know, the start of the Necronomicon 2022. And I'm like, great. And then there was like a little list of, you know, things, you know, make sure you're hydrated, blah, 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 this and that. Yep. And then mask, mask required indoors. And I was like, oh, let me just grab a mask. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't, like, start trouble or not go or whatever. I just put the friggin' mask on, and I went in, and I enjoyed myself. It's it, what it's makes people comfortable, how, you know? It's amazing how difficult this was for people. Um, like, the, the whole my body, my rights, you know, which it's so <laughs> funny. doesn't apply, I guess it doesn't apply to females, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> that, that is, like, the biggest hypocritical thing I've ever heard during the whole pandemic. Oh, my God. I, and, again, like it's hard for me to put myself in a spot that isn't in the medical field because I don't know how I would have reacted had I not gone through. I mean, my wife and I both only dealt with COVID patients for almost two years. That's we, I would just go in and say, send me to the COVID ward. Um, A doctor in one of my hospitals said that I've, that I personally probably saw more COVID patients than he did because um, I didn't give a crap. I like Liz and I can't have kids. We don't have anything to drag home. She was working in another hospital with COVID patients. So, you know what I mean? We were both in it. 
in different things. So, I mean, I saw, and I mean, Mike, I, no matter what the news tells you, whatever anyone tells you, people were dying like flies. The, I, I deal in the, in the, um, I deal more in, in what, before I went, uh, I'm, I'm just part-time now at the hospital since the, the store is just, you know, trucking forward. But when I was full-time during the bulk of COVID, I was dealing mostly with the ventilators and life support. So I'd help intubate, extubate, help manage life support systems, you know, while someone's on life support. And the first person I had to, what's called palliatively extubate, which was where you take the breathing tube out so they could pass. Oh. Essentially, essentially they've, they determined this person is, is brain dead. Um, we run all these tests. It's proven family decides what they want to do. Um, so the first patient I had to do this to, and we were still at the time, families couldn't come in the hospital. We were still wearing these things called PAPRs, which is like a bio suit with its own breathing apparatus, backpack and everything. And so we got to the point where the hospital had to supply these iPads so people could zoom in with their loved ones at the hospitals, you know, for, you know, cause they can't come in and see them of the risk of bringing COVID in or out of the hospital or whatever. So the first patient that I had to extubate so they could pass was at the end of March. And it was like a 19 year old kid who had been on spring break in Florida, waited way too long to go to the doctor. And he had horrible bilateral pneumonia, which essentially just, he just waited too long and um, ended up just having lack of oxygen. And so I had to put his parents on zoom so they could say goodbye to their 19 year old son who was dying of COVID while I took his breathing tube out so he could die through Zoom and they could watch it. That's heavy, man. That's really, was, really heavy. It was, and I've been around a lot of death. I've seen decapitations. I've seen genitalia gone. I've seen limbs gone. I've seen fire. I mean, I've seen everything like since I've been in the medical field. But truthfully, that is one of the most things I will ever, that I will always remember. I mean, it was so horrible. But then again, I have 300 stories since then of that are almost the same thing. I mean, I get kind of actually teary eyed just talking about it now because it, it was so awful and the whole family was there and it was just, it was just horrendous. <laughs> it was Dude, so that, bad. That, that sounds, I mean, you know, I, I definitely, um, you know, but, you know, I, I'm one of these people that believes the medical field and you yeah. know, science and technology and things like that. Like I'm not, yeah. you know, some nut job who, no, no, what goes on, you know, YouTube, like patriot.org or whatever the hell yeah. it is and gets yeah. my news from some you know wacko in a basement somewhere you know and i mean i've always felt like caution is always the better the better measure you know what i mean yeah so yeah but that that's that's horrible man and I, i'd read about those types of things happening and it's just heartbreaking to hear about that stuff and you're telling a firsthand account of it and it's just awful well i can't tell you how many people um and i you know what I understand vaccine resistance, people not wanting to go get something in their body. I mean, I get it. Like, I get why people would be wary of a, something that seemed like it was rushed through, but, it, you know, it really wasn't. But I get it. You know, I never had vaccines prior to working in a hospital, not because I didn't believe in it. I just didn't care. I it just it didn't seem to affect me. I, I got the flu every year, whatever. Uh but then once you get in the medical field, they require it. You know, you got to get these vaccines, blah, 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 you know. And but I can't tell you how many people once the vaccine came out and, you know, when it rolled out, uh, people 
truly didn't rush to get it. The numbers were way lower than they wanted, which then made the virus mutate and, and keep going, whatever. But uh, I can't tell you, and this is not a joke, my wife experienced it at her hospital too, how many people on their deathbed, like literally nothing else we could do, end stage of life from COVID, begging to get the vaccine and saying that they're, they wish they wouldn't have listened to the media, they wish they wouldn't have listened to their loved ones, that they would have got the vaccine. And by then it's just too late. Oh, and it's horrible. It's horrible. And, but that, I mean, that's like hundreds of people. And, I, you know, that's just my wife and I's stories. Whereas, you know, every person I work with has this very similar stories. Um, so it's very heart, very heartbreaking, um, especially seeing people, you know, live in regret. Their last moment is regret, you know, and that's that's an awful way to go out. <laughs> yeah, it really is, man. You know. That's that's terrible. Did you yeah. guys uh, did did you and and Elizabeth um did you get COVID at all during this this whole thing? You know what? Knock on wood. Nope. Oh. And right. we, Mike, we're still wearing masks though. We are. No one else is. But she and I still are because um, one, like I worked the hospital today. So if I, and I work around COVID patients still. So if I come home and have COVID, which we test constantly, so. But, but if I get COVID, I bring it to the store and I give all my customers COVID. Um, so we're still really paranoid about that. And I'm, I'm also paranoid about getting COVID myself because I'm pretty much the only worker at the store. And if the store closes, has to close for a week, we're not reopening. Like we, we have a shoestring budget unless, you know, a money bomb falls in our lap during that week that I have to close. So there's a multi multi-level reason why Liz and I are still masking. Um, and it's very uncomfortable. I went and saw, um, uh, Lorna Shore aborted tour the other night and sold out show. I was the only human being with a mask inside the show. And it, you become very self-conscious and self-aware, uh, when you're like, yep. Yeah, I mean, I still still, I still do see people wearing masks, and it's just like it's the same thing. It's like whatever you feel comfortable doing, man. If you yeah feel like it's your, you know, everyone talks about freedom, you know, and we want our freedoms with with a. Whenever I hear the S at the end of freedom, like when it's in plural, (laughs) yes, it makes me realize that I'm dealing with an imbecile. You know what I mean? No, it's it's true. (laughs) Um, We, uh, I mean. I've had so many interactions with people um, and I was, I was not, you know, I, I realized when the, the, the mask mandate requirements were in that, yes, some people took it way too far, like mask shaming people for not wearing masks. And, and you know what? I figured everyone was pretty, had their heels pretty dug in the dirt about which way they were going. So I didn't feel like I needed to go and be like, well, you know, I'm seeing this stuff, even though I had tons of people being like, you should go, you should go online you should post your stories. Well, what good is that going to do? Because yeah. I mean, the people are solidified in what they believe. So I, I never shamed. Well, I had friends that are like, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm like, totally cool. Cause I truly do believe in freedom of choice. Like I do believe people should be able to do what they want to do. I mean, internally I was like, well, this does to me affect everybody. Cause if you have COVID, it could infect, you know, whatever how many people, but, but now I'm finding that since I'm one of the lone people still wearing a mask, um, uh, I do get some, some shit about it from people, uh, not friends, but, um, people who don't know, or people I'll be walking down the street. I forget to take my mask off. Like I was coming out of Chipotle the other day 
and I don't wear my mask outside. I mean, that's, you know, but I forgot to take it off because I was texting somebody when I walked out with my order and I had some college kids walk by. They're like, I like your mask, mister. I'm like, oh, thanks. And I went down and they all went fucking pussy. And they oh, were, God, man. so they, they all gave me the finger as they're walking away. So I set my food down and I started walking after him. I said, Hey, uh, I'm in the medical field. Let's talk about this a second. And they kept going with their middle fingers out at me. And I said, no, 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 you guys are big boys. Stop. I, I wanted to have an actual conversation. I, I didn't want to like fight, right. but I wanted to explain to them that they don't know the whole story before they just harass some long haired guy in the street that forgot to take his mask off when he walked out of Chipotle, you know? So I've had a lot of instances of, of stuff like that, that, um, it's, you know, a little, little bit of a bummer. Um, but it, it's not going to change my view. It just makes me realize how, um, COVID beyond the disease has also made everyone, if I, I put it this way, the barometer, if you were a, a giving person and caring person, I feel like you went completely that direction where you became more giving, more caring. I saw it with a lot of my friends. But I felt like if you were on the barometer in the middle, if you even had remotely the selfish, you know, like you could just teeter on being selfish or just being a complete a-hole, uh, I felt like COVID from the seclusion just made you go complete a-hole. And uh, yeah. I, I feel I feel like it's going to take us years to recover from this. I mean, especially the youth, like kids that were secluded at home. And, you know, uh, I, I feel like it's beyond the, the medical thing. I, I think psychologically and emotionally, it's really affected a lot of uh, a lot of people in a, you know, a, a negative way, unfortunately. I mean, I can attest to that just even on a personal level, just the, you know, psychological impact of these last few years, to be honest, you know, I mean, it's, well, uh, yeah, it's just not just I can tell it's affected me and, you know, the, the trauma and all that kinds of stuff. You yeah. Know? Well, especially you're a touring musician and you're like, what? I'm, I can't go anywhere. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed to do? You know, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, the government really dropped the ball on the, the, the arts and the, and the entertainment industry, whether it be live music venues, bands, managers, agents, roadies, the local, you know, theaters, like there was no support. And, um, you know, they did the save the stages campaign, which was supposed to like get government funding for local venues, which again would help trickle down hopefully to help bands and, and everybody. But uh, through, through me, my experience in the, in the production company, I started here in Lawrence that I, I left to do the store. I'm still very close with them. They were telling me how hard it was to get that money. Once it, once it was passed, you had to dig up five years of ticketing receipts for every show you ever did your marketing campaign, how the shows did, um, every bit of financial associated for the last five years with your, with your venue to, to get a nugget of money. So you needed that money now, but, and I, and I get, they just can't throw money out at people, but they should have definitely made it a lot easier. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the thing, man. It's like, you know, they were giving away money to other people, you know, yep. of course, like the arts in this, in this country, you know, that, that's like, no, no one takes it seriously. Everyone thinks it's, nope. you know, it's never, never supported. It's never considered a valuable export to the rest of the world. You know, none yeah. of that stuff, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. So, uh, 1313 Mockingbird Lane, obviously that's a reference to the Monsters. Are, are you, <laughs> it is. You guys big Monsters fans? 
Oh, I am huge. It's it's so funny when my because for me, I discovered the Munsters in the late 70s on reruns because I was born in 73. The show, you know, originally ran, I think, in the 60s. Um, for me, being as a young punk rocker, uh, that show was the pinnacle of inclusion and um, taking all walks of life putting them in one spot and showing that we can all get along. I mean, I recognize that from a super young age, like literally uh, my parents said I was obsessed with that show at a young age. I just love the fact that you have all these different walks of life in one spot. And it's funny, the one quote unquote normal person, Marilyn was the minority. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it was fantastic. I mean, it was it's so good. So uh, check to many years later, you know, my wife and I have been together about 20 years um, you know, early on, just not, not even talking about owning a store. She's like, I just told her how much I loved working at the record store back home that I worked at for 12 years, the same one that Steven used to work at in Sioux Falls. And, uh, I said, well, if I ever started my own store, I would, it would definitely have to be a Munsters reference. Cause that show just beyond all the punk rock I was listening to that show in particular helped mold values that I still, as an almost 50 year old adult hold part as part of my dna today and uh so when we were thinking about doing the garage thing um liz was like well it has to have a name what are you gonna call it and i didn't even like hesitate i just it just blurted out well 1313 mockingbird lane of course it wasn't even like a thought i hadn't even ever thought about it i didn't even like i'd never even been like well if i named my store up to the monsters it would be their address it just never even like there was never it just blurted out and it was like well that's it <laughs> yeah i i also loved that show when i was a kid i mean my favorite character was eddie monster you know because oh yeah i uh, i'm quite fond of werewolves you know and, yep and uh you know he was a little werewolf <laughs> and it's yep. like i always thought that was like the coolest thing you know and i think Avon de carlo was like my first like you know oh prepubescent <laughs> like crush you know I, what i mean absolutely <laughs> <laughs> well and uh, I've had Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster, at the store three times now. Um, and that, that was that was a big fanboy moment for me. It's like, I've met everyone. I've met Metallica. I've met Katy Perry. I've met, because the last 15 years of me being a promoter prior to doing the store, I was doing almost arena shows. So I've met everybody, and I my blood pressure doesn't even rise meeting. And that's not me name dropping. That's just like how it was. That was the career I was in before I did the medical and the toy store. But when I meet someone like that, that's a B movie thing that no one cares about. I lose my shit. Like my, my wife's my wife see me meet extremely famous people. And then she see me meet Butch Patrick or, um, you know, I met Bruce Campbell a few times, which I oh. guess he's a little you know, he's not quite B movie. But uh, I've met some, you know, whatever horror people. And she says I act like I'm at an eighth grade birthday party. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Have have you seen the remake, the Rob Zombie re, re you know, whatever visualization of it, that movie that I, came out? I have. Um, my first reaction, well, I had Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster. He's the Tin Man in the new one, if if you've seen it. Yeah. Um, he was in my store last October, so 2021, and he FaceTimed with Rob zombie from my store showing rob the store and then they they chatted about the movie and stuff and i was getting very excited you know oh my god um but then the trailer came out and i was like oh god this looks like a piece of shit like <laughs> oh. i remember 
I remember just, I don't know why it just didn't. Re- and I was so like, but I, I still held firm that like Rob is a huge fan of the Munsters. This is a passion project for him. This is not a payday. You know, I kept telling myself, but I kept watching the trailer and being like, I don't know why, but I just like the trailer just to me, just, just, there was something that was missing. I don't know how to describe it. And so when it premiered, I had ordered the Blu-ray offline so that I got the Blu-ray the same day it premiered uh, on Netflix, which was also the same day that I had Butch Patrick in store. So we, so we watched the movie before Butch came to town. And I remember sitting with my wife saying, well, let's watch this dumpster fire. And we watched it and we laughed. We cried through it. We went like at the end of it, I was like, I love that so much more than I thought. And now it is a staple in our household. Oh, like, it okay. is, we absolutely love it. It's truthfully one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. And uh, most of my friends think I'm crazy. They're like, I hate it. But um, I like it gets better. And I, I truthfully like um, I don't necessarily like his wife in a lot of roles. I liked her in the first couple movies he did, but I felt like it was a little overused after that. But you know what? I felt like everyone in the movie did really good justice to their characters with their own spins, spin on them. So I really liked it. I lo- I, I would say I love it. <laughs> I'm not as enthusiastic about it. No, I, <laughs> no, no, no. I believe me. I've had people look at me like, "You what? You like like?" And I I get it because it's uh it's so different and um, yeah. I mean, there there isn't many people I feel that share the same uh love for it that that my wife and i do the thing is i i really i don't like many things by rob zombie yet i'm i'm kind of of rooting for him though you know what i mean yes because i i think like i think totally projecting this right now but i think that if i were to hang out with that dude for you know a few hours we would probably have a lot in common about the stuff that we like you know yes Yep. And he would he would be the coolest guy to hang out with and talk about yep. movies with and even music yep. too, you know. Yep, yep. But um and I, I do think he's a good director, but I think that he does not write the best scripts, maybe. I, I can agree with that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yep. You know, but he's, he's, I'm sorry, go ahead. he's a control oh no, it's he's a control freak. Like ah, okay. Yeah. Yes, did um uh one of my old workers at the company Mammoth that I started here, the production company she went on to be his assistant tour manager um, for many of his tours and also handling VIP and stuff. She had nothing but amazing things to say about Rob and Sherry, but she always said that, you know, Rob has to be involved with everything. He's there at load in. He has to make sure the stage is everything's done. He, he has to meet like, she just was like, he's, but she didn't say it. She said it in a redeeming quality, not a negative quality. Uh, but it, but it, she really filled in some gaps for me, and and I've met Rob on occasion too. We've opened up for him a few times, and um, it is very superficial handshake. Thank you, you know, blah blah blah. Yeah. But um, but I've you know some people have had bad experiences with him. Um, you know, you could probably say that about me. I mean, or anybody that you know, everyone has an off day. Um, so uh, he he's legitimately seems like a pretty nice guy. Uh, Joya said that when they would get to a town after Rob would do setup and whatever him and Sherry would literally just take a cab to the mall without any security or anything and just go hang out, go shop. And, you know, they take their pets with them on tour. They have a, a black cat and a black pug, I believe. 
Um, and it was just like my wife and I just be like, they just seem like us. That that's the sense I <laughs> I get from them is that they're pretty down to earth. I always appreciate like when when celebrity types just roll on their own. Yeah, you know, I, I had a similar story uh, with uh, Keanu Reeves actually. Like my ex, um, she's a video editor. Uh-huh. And she worked for this production company, and they do a lot. Uh, they do a lot of things, but one of the main things they do is they shoot all of the um, additional content that would be like on a Blu-ray release, like interviews oh. and things like that. Uh-huh. So um, they were doing a Man of Tai Chi that I didn't even see this. But I, I barely was aware this film came out that Keanu Reeves yep. was in. So one day he had to show up at their office to be uh, filmed during interviews, right? Mm-hmm. The dude just showed up by himself, like with no – You usually like when – you know, I, I have a little <laughs> bit of insight in this thing because I've – you know. Yeah. Like, if someone shows up, like, Eli Roth showed up one time to do a similar thing, and he had, like, oh, wow. all these people with him. Like, his publicist, <laughs> management, you know, like, all these, yeah. like, an entourage of people showed up. And Keanu Reeves is, a, I would assume, is a well, more well-known, bigger star. Oh, you know what I absolutely. mean? Absolutely, yeah. The, the dude, like, took the subway there. He yep. just showed up early, and, like, the, the the elevator door opened up and he just walked in. It was just by himself. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was when when I heard that story from them. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. That really shows the quality of character of somebody. I think. And he didn't have like five other things to do that afternoon either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, because usually the the publicist is like, "All right, you got thirty minutes. Boom. All right, he's yeah. Got, he, he, you know, hard stop it. You know, whatever, and they <laughs> get him out of there to the next thing. You know." But, uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've, there, there's video footage of Keanu on, online where someone was like filming him kind of nonchalantly where he was on a subway and he like pretty much begs this lady to take his spot. He's sitting and she's standing and he gives her a spot just and he just stands. Yeah, I've heard. I actually I've heard that same story, too, about him. Yeah. You know, and, you know, there's sightings of him around New York every now and then. You know what I mean? And yeah. Uh, I know that he trains like jujitsu and he's into like martial arts and stuff like that too. Yeah. And, and, and he's done that his whole life, which to me is like, especially training jujitsu for a really long time. You just get dominated and destroyed every day by people. To yeah. Have that character to show up, you know, every day is, is really <laughs> yep. admirable. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like he's a pretty awesome human being. I would definitely, if, if it came out to where he had a, a secret torture dungeon it would like probably destroy my world you know what i mean like because i i do really think pretty highly of him just because of you know all the story i mean all the stories of him have been nothing but positive it's crazy so before we get too far off the the mark here i just want to do you guys also do uh, online sales too and stuff like that yeah i mean um one one of the ways when we first started the store um well, back to, uh, do you mind if I jump back to the toy store? Near yeah, you? yeah, go ahead. It's kind of, it's kind of tied in. Sure. Well, like I said, the toy store near you, they, they used to do, and these guys that do, uh, the toys that made us on the toy store near you, they also do Brian Volkweiss, who's the, um, head of it. He's pretty much the one that invented the comedy standup special or how we know it today. He's kind of the man behind a lot of big comedians as far as producing their shows toys are like his passion project um he also like he's a producer on that new zach zach efron show where he travels the world um trying to trying to do like sustainable things that oh, are better yeah. for the okay. earth and stuff mm-hmm. it won uh, it won some like big awards so the the 
these guys that do the show, they do big things, like big, big things. And I was literally watching the toys that made us at the store and I get this phone call. It's like, hey, uh, is the owner there? I'm like, oh, hey, yep, this is him. Mostly the only worker. Yeah, my name's Rich Merrick. Um, I'm the producer of a TV show called The Toys That Made Us. And take in mind, I was watching The Toys That Made Us when he called. Oh. And and so I was like, so I didn't take this seriously at all because I have a lot of friends that like to play hijinks with me. So I was like, oh, is, is Ashton Kutcher around here somewhere? You know, I was like, <laughs> and... So I didn't take it. I was barely even holding the phone in my mouth. I was just like, yeah, he's like, well, we're, we're producing this new TV show for Amazon Prime called A Toy Story Near You. Uh, throughout our episodes of The Toys That Made Us, we had many people write in saying that we should talk to you about you personally about toys in your store. And I'm thinking, I run a 200 square foot tiny store in Lawrence, Kansas. Who the hell wrote in to these people? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there was just so many things that didn't really to me seemed to make sense. And he's like, so would you be interested in being on a syndicated show on, on Amazon prime? Uh, any revenue generated from the show, we split 50 50 with whosoever episode is getting the revenue. And, and I, was like, I was like, I literally had the phone away from him. I was like, yeah, mm, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 He's like, well, if I get, I'll give you your email and then I I'll send the, the proper documents over. I was like, yeah. So I, I literally gave him my spam account. I didn't even give him the store email. Like two minutes later, I I'm on, <laughs> I'm, I'm on my phone and I, I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to check that account. And sure, sure as I'll get out. There's like documents from Amazon prime and the, it's called the nacelle company there. I was like, Oh my God. So I call him back. I was like, Hey, uh, I'm sorry if I seemed kind of like not serious when you called and he just laughed. He's like, no, no, I get it, man. Cause you know, everyone calls your landline at a store. Can I get your social? I mean, like, oh, yeah. I get, I get, <laughs> I get 40 spam calls a line on my, on my landline. So um, the interesting thing about this show is since COVID was hitting, um, they couldn't send a film crew out. So we had to film everything by ourselves. And I, and I promise this will get back to the, do we sell things online? This is kind of a long lead up to. No, no, no. This is it. This is interesting, right? I didn't realize that. I mean, you know, yeah, I didn't realize you guys shot a lot of that stuff on your own. That's crazy. Everything. Yeah. Wow. Um, and if you compare it to the other shows they've done, it looks exactly the same, like same narration, same animation, whatever. So, um, so they, they said, you know, we, you're going to have to film this. You do have to have an iPhone 11 or better. There were specifications and my wife had just got an iPhone 11 and, um, they said, we will send you a rough outline. We need you to, you know, hit these points. Then you Dropbox your footage to us every night or you know when you get it filmed we did every night we just we were so excited to be part of this we just they said we were so fast um so we were like we're like oh my god you know so so we started filming it and uh uh ourselves so we were working our hospital jobs doing with covid also trying to keep the store open and trying to film this episode and uh we sent them a, a probably 15 16 17 hours worth of material that they will down to like 24 minutes i think Mm -hmm. um but so we would drop box them these clips every night and then they would come back and say all right clip a is good clip b is good clip c uh could you elaborate on this topic clip d uh you know i don't know if we'll use it type of thing well and then um i happen to mention as i'm going through their bullet points of things to address that i worked in the medical field and that my wife was a nurse so they call me they're like hey you know this episode is kind of about 
or the series starting out is kind of about stores surviving during COVID. And we didn't know you were in the medical field working with COVID patients. Oh, well, you know, I, I didn't think it was relevant to a toy store because we have always tried to keep our medical life and our toy store life separate. Um, and I was like, oh, so we ended up having to reshoot a bunch of stuff. And then I had to talk my wife into being, because originally it was just me, just stupid long hair talking about toys. And so they said, well, we really would like to have your wife involved. And I was like, I would like to have her involved too. She doesn't really want to be involved. <laughs> um, because she's, you know, to, you know, girls are, I mean, like she's just a little more shy about being in front of a camera, you know? And um, uh, so we got her involved and I feel like she really helped make, because she's an integral part of the, the story, even though she's not there every day, she is my support system and, helps me make decisions and stuff. So, and I think people need to see that. So we went about two months of filming and drop boxing, all these things. And um, during this is when the store actually closed for, you know, the, and I say forced, you know, like when they said, you know, you have to do the forced closure for yeah. quarantining. You know, they drop, Again, the, drop the hammer on you guys. Yeah. Yes. But I was all about it. I was in healthcare. I knew how bad it was. I was totally fine. I was still, I was working so much at the hospital. It didn't matter if the store was open or not to pay its bills because, you know, we were working double, triple overtime. So um, not that we had extra money to spare, but we definitely could make pay the rent for a couple months on our own. Um, so we had a website. I was very adamant that the website, you cannot buy off the website. Um, it has to just be informational. I don't want to be eBay. I don't want to sell online. I want people to come visit me at the store because I like to talk to people. I like to meet people. I want to give people hugs. You know, that's just how I am. Um, well, after this show premiered, immediately, overnight, people, I had hundreds of people messaging me from all over the world. How do we keep you open? How do we get you money? How can we do this? I don't see anything on your website. How do we buy from you? So in about four days notice, I had to have my uh, friend, make the website a functional e-commerce website that you could buy off of. And, um, that, I mean, we went, I mean, the orders just came in and sustained us for like six months. That's a great, that's great to hear that, man. And that, that's, that's one of the bright points, man. Is like when you hear stories like that, when people really yeah. come together and want to support each other, you know? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I had nights that I would be home just crying, honestly, like, I know it's not manly, but just because you, you so don't got to sell me on crying, man. That's, you know, <laughs> definitely not me. Yeah. Man. Well, it's so funny because so many people, even two years later after the show being in, people still come in. This I had people. I had a guy fly, flying from London to come to the store. I mean, we have people traveling from Texas, Oklahoma, California that that make road trips to come to the store, and everyone wants to to hear this these kind of the story I'm telling you. So, and I, every time I tell someone, I was like, I was so overwhelmed with the online orders as far as like people supporting us that i would just be in tears sometimes of of like i can't believe how awesome people can be especially when you're dealing with the backlash of covid and, and seeing the worst of a lot of people throughout this um so a lot of people when i tell them that they kind of get this look on their face like really I'm like yeah i mean like <laughs> yes i you know I, i'd have like horrible man crying hair in my face i'd be so like it was just so overwhelming that the support the store got still gets um so yeah it was it was pretty crazy um so we owe a lot to this episode to the single episode um 
I truly do not think we would be open had this not premiered. Um, and, and also our community of Lawrence, it's, it's a weird town. Um, the, the town itself wanted to make sure we stayed open too. It's absolutely amazing. Like I, I can't even, you know, and the, to boot, um, the, the Nacelle company still sends me royalty checks uh, every six months from the episode. True, they're not as strong as they were because, you know, people, more people have gotten Amazon Prime accounts or people aren't rewatching it as much or what have you. But still, they, they kept up their deal. They split 50-50 of any revenue generated from your episode. Well, that, that's awesome, man. That's cool. Uh, and yeah. That's actually pretty, I mean, I didn't know about it until Steven told me about you yeah. guys being on it. But I, I, it's, a, it's a pretty cool series. And I think yes. what they're up to like maybe well, I think five uh, seasons now or four seasons. Yeah, yeah, five seasons, and yeah. the, I think the sixth season should be out pretty soon. But I mean, our first season, five episodes, and it went from Portland to Lawrence to England to Japan and Canada, all in one season. So, and and for me that was very comforting because I saw what is that three continents? One, two, yeah, three continents or three countries, not continents, countries all having small businesses dealing with COVID and seeing that I don't care if you're in Japan, England, Canada, or America, it was exactly the same. And it's so funny. Everybody had the same way that they tried to earn money during COVID, which was what we started doing these Facebook live sales where we would just go on. We, during COVID, we were doing it every week to generate sales. So we were shipping stuff all over the world and it was so funny. We thought we were so smart doing that. To that, and when we saw the every episode is, then we started doing Facebook live sales. Next episode, then we started doing Facebook live sales. It was so funny. As a collective, we all, as store owners, all subconsciously, like Professor X'd each other somehow, <laughs> not knowing each other, and everyone did the same thing to survive. And and the communities in all the respected cities and and uh, countries did the same thing for them made sure they stayed open um it was great covid really brought out the worst and the best in people <laughs> well now would probably be a good time to for us to drop some uh some locations where people can can you know get at you online oh yeah and all that sort of stuff so like just let it rip like okay. all the all the all the different platforms the socials all right well uh run <laughs> we just started doing tiktok which you know as an old man i love doing tiktok uh <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Are you familiar with the band Ghost? Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people, it, I think, know yeah. that band. Well, yeah. uh, um, you know, like a lot of us, I was into them when they first started. When they were, when I saw them, at, you know, play to a hundred people. But Tobias, who's you know the main guy in Ghost, mm -hmm. he just had a song called "Mary on the Cross" that just got super popular on TikTok. And he's he's like later forties, mid to late forties, and it's so funny. He did not know what TikTok was till the song till their song got like 54 million hits or some nonsense from tiktok so now he's a tiktok tiktok aficionado so it's so funny a lot of us old schoolers are you know i being a show promoter and a musician most of my life i've i know that staying on top of um what's popular and promoting um Hat is a is a must if you're going to stay relevant but it was so funny seeing that you know someone of his caliber like oh there's this other platforms, but anyway, our TikTok is thirteen thirteen uh, Mockingbird. I think it's just thirteen thirteen Mockingbird. I should know that by heart, but I'm on there so much. But our Instagram and Facebook are 
you know, the respected Facebook and Instagram slash 1313 Mockingbird KS. So 1313 Mockingbird KS. Uh, Mockingbird Lane was already taken, so I had to get creative. And then our official website is 1313mockingbirdtoys.com. Uh, okay. All right. Good. And and we'll uh, I'll have all this stuff in the show notes. You know, like links to all this this stuff for uh, cool. for the you know for the store and all that. Yeah. So people could check it and, out. And you know, I still haven't heard your story about your trailer in Lawrence. Oh well, I, now I'm going to lead up to that because cool. Awesome. When when um you know on that same tour that we were out with Origin with John and uh you know and Paul, uh, Stephen when we were in Minneapolis, he's like when you go to Sioux Falls, not Sioux Falls, uh, Kansas City. Yep. Can't, not Kansas City either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. All right. What, what town was <laughs> Lawrence, Kansas. Um, yep. He's like, yeah, you got to stop in and, and see Terry at his store. So I'm like, we're looking forward to it. And I was talking to Longstreth. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go check it out too. So we, we got to the bottleneck. We dr- were driving, and we pulled up right in front of the venue. And Todd, our guitar player, jumps out. He puts cones around the trailer. and Then he rushes over to my side because I was driving. Uh-huh. And he's like, dude, jump out of the van. So I go out, and the 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 uh, driver's side wheel on our trailer, like the bearing was gone. And it was basically just, it was being held on the axle by nothing, basically. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we could have been, like, killed. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. um, I don't know how we didn't get in an accident or for how, how long that was the condition that we were dealing with. So that was the last night of the tour. And we had a, you know, we had a rental van, which we had to get back two days later. We had to drop yep. it off in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, so we were, you know, I had a schedule to keep here. And, okay, now we need a solution. We can't drive this thing. So yeah. we, had to, we had to rent a uh, U-Haul, okay? And then, well, what do you do with this trailer, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, of course, uh, Paul Ryan comes up with a solution. And um, he's Love like, oh, you know, there's like a place that he's like, Mike, remember that place I was telling you about the outhouse where they made that documentary? That's like, <laughs> yes, way the hell out there on the edge of town. It's like, that's a great place to dump a trailer if you never want you want to get rid of. <laughs> so, oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, we loaded all the gear out of the the trailer that the, the death trap trailer into the bottleneck. Yeah. And then uh, me and Todd drove all the way out there going like four miles an hour with the. Oh. The, the, the decrepit death trap trailer and we uh you know we're out there he he's like one of these guys with like uh he's got all these grinders and tools and everything and yeah we, we like stripped he looked up on his phone like where all the vin numbers are going to be and like yep. any kind of identification and we just stripped that entire thing Oh, my God. I love like it. Ground everything off, removed every sticker. We pulled out all the interiors to make sure there was nothing that could track, they could trace that back to yeah. anybody, right? Uh, all this is alleged. You know, this is a story I'm telling. This is allegedly we did all these things, all right? Just yep. out there. Got it. And then we just dumped it in the side of the road and, like, went back to, <laughs> went back to the vent. <laughs> so that's why I didn't get a chance to, <laughs> to stop by the store. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> So that was a, um, a bit of a bit of a tale. You know? <laughs> one of one of the worst trailer stories I have is uh, I was touring with this band called Nodes of Ranbia in like 2006 or something, and we were in New Mexico, and I was sleeping in the um, the bunk right next to the back window, essentially, and I was a, and we were driving through 
road construction in New Mexico. So we had concrete, you know, the concrete partitions on the side because it was down to one lane of traffic. Yeah. And they were laying lime on the right side of the road. So there was literally guys in hazmat suits laying this lime. And that stuff's like toxic. Yes. So and so all of a sudden I hear this like thunk, 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 thunk. And I look, the tongue had broken off the back of the trailer, and the only thing holding the trailer to the van were the the chains. So the oh, front man. so the front of the trailer was literally grinding on the interstate but like bouncing. And I was, I just jumped out of the bunk. I was like screaming, like, you guys gotta pull over. So we end up pulling over on the side of the road and we see our trailers pretty much demolished. And luckily, you know, no one, the people behind us didn't get killed, but these guys in hazmat suits come running towards us. Like, you cannot be here. This is dangerous. This is, uh, you cannot be here. Like, what do you want us to do? Like, we can't drive this. We're stuck. So we're stuck with these guys yelling at us. We got, um, I can't remember what the closest town was, but um, a, a Native American towing company and, and repair company came and picked us up. And they were just awesome. They just like towed the trailer back, loaded it up, took it back. And we had bought the trailer brand new before a tour because we needed a bigger trailer. So this trailer was supposed to be brand new. So they take us back and they show us that it had been, the tongue had been soldered on at some point. So it obviously was not a brand new trailer right. or it had been damp, a return or something. So we're just fuming, you know? So while we're sitting there looking at this trailer, our van is sitting in the parking lot and all of a sudden I hear this kind of poof and I look and our water pump blows oh, no. while it's just sitting in the parking lot. So all this liquid just running towards us. So we ended up having to push the, the, the van across the street to a pet boys to get fixed while these awesome guys who were looking at our trailer literally Jimmy rigged this crazy iron. It, it almost looked like a train track uh, <laughs> like piece like I'm not even joking that and they they literally blow torch this damn thing on and they were like I was like is it going to hold they're like they're like nothing is breaking this thing they're like they, <laughs> these guys knew what they were knew what they were doing and we still made it to the show on time but it was scary as all get out <laughs> yeah that, that's so I mean these I'm all of us have stories like this man it's like this is like a rite of passage is dealing with yeah. these types of things you know yes but I love that you left it at the outhouse yeah I, I, yeah. <laughs> Paul Electric. Ryan got a kick out of that whole story. Oh right, my too. God, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I didn't make it out to you guys because, like, we got back and the doors were getting ready to open, and you know, I was all stressed. You know, out I get it. Everything. But uh, nope. but next time, man, I'll, we'll be out there in the um in the spring. There's another tour happening, and and I'm they're gonna it, we're playing Lawrence, Kansas on that run. So for sure. Do you, do you can't, are you allowed to say? I what can't say. I'll is? tell you when we're done. Okay. You know. Oh, okay. We're no worries. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we I'll, I don't have the date, but I'll I'll see if I can you know definitely. Um, actually, the whole way that you and I know each other is from touring. Like my yeah. old band Anodyne played with. We did a uh, I forgot how long it was a string of dates or tour East Coast. I don't it was somewhere out. I don't even remember what part of the country we hit really. But with, well, uh, we with were, Caligari, your old band. Yeah, it was west. It was on the west. It was on the west coast because uh, when we got the dog uh, was in. Las Vegas. Okay, that's what I'm. Yeah, that's what I'm building because yep. my cat's my cat's sitting here. She just woke up from her nap and she's looking oh. at me. And she's <laughs> like, "I heard you guys are going to talk about animals," so I'm like, "Okay." So the story of Gary the Pitbull is <laughs> a story that I share with so many people, and it's on that tour that we did together. Yep. 
yeah uh yeah we were playing the we were playing i don't remember the club but curl up and die was supposed to be the headliner at a show in las vegas and then for whatever reason they canceled which if i remember i don't think the show was that stellar the show um, didn't even happen as a matter of fact the, that, the promoter think, the promoter was like if they're right. if they're not playing you guys can't play <laughs> so yeah. it's like all right and then we ended up someone found a uh, a show a place for us to play and it was like some like open mic night or something like that. Yes. And then yes. We, we played at like two o'clock in the morning or whatever yes. in front of like maybe 10 or 15 people. Yeah. Hung out. <laughs> well, when we were loading out, there were two little kids on a bicycle on, you know, two bicycles. And they had this like rope wrapped around this pit bull's neck that was about six weeks old. And they were, it was like a makeshift leash, but it was more like a noose. And, you know, Pipples are pretty big puppies and they're really gangly and don't know how to walk. So this dog was essentially being dragged behind this bike. And so he would kind of get up and then fall. And then my drummer in, in the band Caligari I was in at the time, Adam, he's like points. And we see, and the dog's got like kind of road rash on one yeah. of its paws and, and its shoulder. And so we walked up, didn't even say anything to the kids. Like, I pulled out a $20 bill. I just gave it to the kid and took the dog. There was no words exchanged except for when they came back, maybe like an hour later when we were finishing up and just said, Hey, we can get you another dog. Oh man. Um, so yeah, but I remember, so it's so funny. I walked back. So Adam and I are walking back with the dog and the other two guys, Tim and Matt that are in the band are like, what are we going to do it? Cause we had just started the tour. Like, what are we going to do with this guy? I'm like, I don't care. You know, like he's, he's my, he's coming with us. But I remember you, you were like, cause we, the band was Caligari I was in and you were like, yo, you need to name that dog Gary after Caligari. And I went, <laughs> yep, his name's Gary. So he, be, he became Gary G A R I and Gary, like it was so insane. The dog never Peter pooped in the car or in the van once the whole tour we were on, which I think was like, it was like, I don't know, like, Two three weeks. Yeah, it was Some, now that now it's starting to come back to me that it was definitely yeah. at least three weeks because we. It was, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I remember it was a longer tour to have a dog on the first day, essentially. That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, but I remember, like, I've still got pictures in my photo album of of us having him at the the laundromat while we were doing laundry, lifting him in in a a laundry basket that was there, and like moving him around. Great dog, and so we got him home from tour, and I already had two dogs. A uh, Boston Terrier named Graves and a, a Jack Russell Terrier named Ash. Great dogs, but for some reason, I think, you know, uh, Gary, you know, obviously had been abused and been through some trauma. He was, he got in the house, but the minute there was other dogs, he just got like he would get so scared that fur would fly off of him. Oh man! Like not even fall, like like fly. And so my other dogs, I think, really sensed his skittishness and they just really beat up on him. So I ended up having to divide my house in half. So we had the Gary house and then the Ash and Graves house. And, um, you know, I felt like he wanted to socialize with the other dogs, but just didn't know how. And um, I, you know, I felt like his quality of life wasn't awesome. I mean, I, I took him everywhere with me, everywhere. I wanted to make sure he knew he was loved, you know, because he became he came from a crappy situation. Um, and one of my friends, Tim, that was a tattoo artist had told me, look, you know, Gary's awesome. I want a pit bull. I, I really want, and I was just like, well, honestly, you like Gary and 
you should you should take him and try you know i didn't want to get rid of him it was not an option to get rid of him but it just seemed like the stars were aligning like you know uh so i i let him i call it test drive he test drove gary for like two days and you know i went over each day and it just it was a different dog he was so happy free range of the house him and tim were just like cuddling and check two years later uh you know tim painted this humongous mural of gary on the side of his tattoo building i mean like they were best friends that rules. and it just seemed like it was meant to happen and uh, even though i was super sad not having gary in my life anymore uh you know directly i still got to see him when i was home you know i, I actually the last time i saw gary before he passed this he was um we got him at six weeks and he had already been neutered um which generally stunts the growth of a dog mm -hmm. to get neutered too early um so the vet, when I got him home from tour said, oh yeah, he's like, he was like 30, 40 pounds. They're like, he probably won't get to be more than 60 pounds because you know, of, of that. I mean, he was a good 110 when he died, when he finally passed away. But the last time I got a kiss from him was outside of Tim's tattoo shop where Tim had him in a, had him in his car. He's like, Do you, he always called him old man, Gary. Cause Gary, you know, was super old at the end and white faced and, yeah. and I, Tim rolled down the window and Gary literally jumped out of the window and bashed me in the lip with his humongous head and like literally, literally like ripped my lip open from like jumping on me. And it, I mean, it was a good memory. Yeah. Um, but that was the last time I saw him. And then he, he passed away of, you know, oddly enough, prostate cancer, uh, like a month or two later. Um, but he didn't suffer. He had a really good life. He, he went on a lot. Tim took him everywhere. He, he went on a lot of adventures. So he had a pretty good life. I, I feel, um, I feel like some things happen for a reason. And I definitely think us finding that dog in a parking lot in Las Vegas was meant to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I would tell that story to a lot of people, man. Like I, um, I, I forgot that, uh, I was the one who came up with his name. <laughs> yeah. But yep, that's, yep. that's really, that's really cool. And I, I was, <laughs> I, a lot of times I wonder whatever happened to Gary, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. He lived a great life. He probably lived a better life than most of us do. <laughs> <laughs> So we're in a post-Halloween season right now. I mean, I know you and I both love, you know, spooky stuff. And uh, did yep. you guys have a good Halloween, anything special with the store or anything like that? Oh, well, every year we do, um, We, you know, it started in the garage doing an annual Christmas or annual Halloween costume contest. So that tradition has lasted to our physical store as well. So yeah, we did a, uh, we did, we usually do it on the set. If Halloween's not on a Saturday, we usually do it on the Saturday before Halloween. So we did it here and we, yeah, we generally have a couple hundred entries where we, we take a picture and we, Liz and I'll dress up too the same day. And then we, we take pictures. Um, and then Liz and I'll narrow it down to five or six people. And then we let the internet decide. And this year, and, and also a local trophy company here makes a unique trophy every year for me. Like last year it was a carry trophy. So you know, the trophies are like two feet tall and last year's was Carrie with just blood dripping on the trophy. And this year it was uh, Ash from Evil Dead mounted on the top with blood splatter and everything. And then I give the winners um, a hundred dollar gift bag from the store where they tell me the five top things they're into. And then I cater a hundred dollar gift bag to their interests so they don't just get garbage. Wow. Um, That's like, so it's yeah. like curated this whole thing. Yes. Yes. And uh, so the, the girls that well, we also do a zombie walk every year in Lawrence that the store sponsors that does about a thousand to fifteen hundred people where we we gather in the park. Liz and I, we 
uh, curate the event with a local venue here called the Granada. And then we, um, Liz and I do the blood splatter pool uh, that we take donations for the Humane Society. Um, and then they, we do the zombie walk. So we have a, we also do a contest there. And the girls that won that contest also won our store contest, which was, it was a mom and a daughter who were, it's a Girl Scout leader and a Girl Scout. And they went as zombie Girl Scouts. Um, but amazing, like the mom put arrows through her front and back. And then they even had their Girl Scout cookie cart. That's all just blood and guts. Um, I mean, but I'm not doing it any justice, but amazing. They did such good work, but they, they won both contests. Wow. <laughs> so they, they cleaned house. But besides that, we do, um, we do the zombie walk every year. We do the costume contest. Then we generally hand out about 3,000 to 4,000 pieces of candy in downtown Lawrence where they, they bring the kids. Um, and this is the first year since COVID um, that they've done it. So it was great to have the kids back. So we just stand outside and give candy out along with a lot of the other local businesses. The first year we ever did downtown Lawrence Halloween with the store, I sat meticulously bagged 500 toys in individual bags and then bought 3,500 pieces of candy. And to be in truth be told, I did not think four years later that the store would still be going strong. I really thought this was going to be a, a failed science ex experiment. I was like, oh, we'll do the store for a year. I bet it closes and I'll say I did it. So I, the first year I was like, I'm going to, I did 500 toys and then uh, 3,500 pieces of candy and we ran out. Um, so then I was like, oh, the next year I was like, we're still around. I don't think I could afford even to do 500 toys again. <laughs> or the time to bag. So we just buy a lot of candy um, and hand it out. And we just have a crap ton of fun. Uh, this year, a friend of ours brought his, he has this baby werewolf puppet that he sticks his hand into. So he stood outside and like either, you know, tortured or befriended kids with this baby werewolf. And we make it a pretty big event. I mean, our store is lime green outside with gargoyles on the outside. So it's pretty evident what the Halloween store is in town. <laughs> so people make a point to come by. How far away from the bottleneck is that? It was how far away from the venue was the store? Oh, maybe five blocks, something. Oh, it's not too like, far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, bottleneck's on New Hampshire. The next street over is Massachusetts, which is the main street. And we're on Massachusetts and it's like, one block over and then on mass, maybe like three blocks down. So probably just like four blocks or something. It's okay. pretty close. And yeah. That's why I was bummed out. Cause I was like, man, it's like, it was so close. But by the time we got back, I think either it was closed or it was, you know, it was one of these deals where it's like, I just couldn't, I had to like do things, you know? Oh I mean, yeah. 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 You know, drop a trailer off. <laughs> we, we, we love being by the venues. We have the Granada theater, which is a thousand capacity venue right across the street so all the bands uh come over like the last time guar played in town i couldn't get them out of the store like uh napalm death were a regular stop when they're in town um and lorna shore and aborted and ingested and a bunch of other metal bands played the bottleneck the other night uh, and they all came to the store and hung out um it's great because i was you know a musician for so long but also throughout being a musician i was a show promoter from the age of 15 to about 42 and I've really missed being entrenched in the music and thing. Um, but so many bands will pop in and they'll be like, wait, did you book a show for us a couple years? <laughs> did I settle like, with you at the end of the night? 
<laughs> I'm like, yep. I'm like, that was me. Um, so it's so funny. Like I'll, it'll be like tour, like tour managers, road crew, uh, bands will come in and they'll be like, either, either you played in a band or you booked our show. So it's really great. So doing the store, being in such close proximity of, of two amazing music venues still gives me that fixation of, um, being involved in, in the music, you know, scene, I guess you could say. Um, so it's, it's been pretty awesome. Um, uh, I think we picked a really good location where we're at and we're right next door to a music store that sells instruments and stuff. So bands will usually hit the music store and hit our store or vice versa. You know, it's a, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I, at the, Lawrence is actually a pretty cool town. I, I like going there. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, it's, I mean, when I originally decided to move from Sioux Falls, I had turned 30. Just uh, um, the band Caligari I was in at the time had just like broken up. And I just was like, um, the venue I'd been booking forever, the pomp room had been torn down. And it just was so, and when you, when I did you guys in Sioux Falls, I did you at the Knights of Columbus Hall. Yeah. And that was like a Band-Aid, you know, that because there was no, all the city kept closing venues. And I'd been doing it for 15 years in Sioux Falls and it just gets taxing, like fighting the city. Like I have so many stories about cops showing up to my shows. I mean, being th- threatened with being audited, having, I mean, so many, so many back then Sioux Falls was super conservative. It's way better now, but back then it was just fighting against the grain constantly. And it was just draining. And so when I turned 30, the palm room had closed. I'd been trying to do shows at the Knights of Columbus Hall, but it's not the same having the bands play. It's just, it's a different vibe. I like playing halls and places like that because I feel like it's more intimate, but trying to get, you know, bands to play, like higher profile bands to, to sell them on a, a venue like that is really tough. Um, I had played Lawrence a bunch touring and I was either going to move to Lawrence, Kansas or Providence, Rhode Island. Cause they were oh. two towns that I fell madly in love with when touring and they're very similar. Um, but my mother had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh man. Sorry to hear that. It's totally cool. I mean, it's funny. They gave her six months to live like 15 years before she died. Like she was a crazy tough as nails farm woman that refused to die. And truthfully, um, I mean, she went through multi, she went into comas. She had so much surgeries, had so many things removed. I mean, her quality of life was nothing. I mean, there were so many times where like, I was just like, whoever's listening out in ether, please have her pass. And I know it sounds awful, but it just, she just was in, she had for the last 10 years of her life, she had horrible quality of life. She lived on oxygen, constant surgeries, heart attacks from, she had a massive heart attack which led to also her being in a coma for a few days from her chemotherapy. And it was just never ending for this woman. I just felt horrible for her. Um, how, where was I even? Oh, but I wanted to be somewhere within driving distance of home so that I, so I could be there for her if she needed me. So that's sure, how I ended up. So that, that's how I ended up in Lawrence. <laughs> uh, Cause otherwise I was, gonna move i was full on dead set i'm moving to providence um but then i was like oh you know with my mom being so sick and uh and i'm glad i did i met my wife shortly after and uh you know ended up doing a bunch of other cool shit <laughs> providence is great i love providence i mean it's just such a you know just a 
that New England creepiness, you know. Yep. Yep. Is that where they do is that where they do Necronomicon? Yeah, yeah, they do uh they do Necronomicon every two years in Providence and um there's like the Lovecraft Society. They yes. you know, integral in putting that together. And then there's the Lovecraft Film Festival, which is usually the same year, um, out in Oregon, in Portland. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah, Portland's another awesome place. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> um but yeah, I've always liked Providence. I mean I still live in Boston uh for a few years back in the nineties and um you know that was like like another that was like less than an hour away but it was so completely different and a lot of times i would go down i would go down there to see shows because um, yeah through in the 90s there was a problem with violence in boston and uh sometimes bands refused to come to boston and they would only play providence and i'd go down there and we'd also play shows down there occasionally and it was, it was pretty cool mm-hmm. um did you ever go to have you seen the movie session nine of course oh the danvers uh, uh yeah. hospital yeah. yeah. Did did I ever tell you about me about Caligari getting arrested, sneaking onto the premises? No. So we were on tour, maybe two thousand. Let me think. I was very familiar with the building. No, it's two thousand one. I was very familiar with the building before the movie ever came out. I I love asylums. I love the history behind asylums. I used to drag those poor guys. I don't know if you remember, but they really weren't of this on the same level with me as far as liking horror and stuff. Um, they, uh, they just kind of put up with me because <laughs> yeah. it was my, you know, it was primarily my band, sure. but uh, I mean, we were buddies, but they weren't into the horror stuff like me. But, um, but I, I like, I had to go to Danvers and especially after the, cause I think session nine was the only movie that had ever been filmed in there. You know, all the other asylums that I had stuff filmed in, but um, I'd heard that they were looking at tearing the hospital down to turn it into condos. So I wanted to make sure I visited it before that happened. Um, and, and they did. I mean, the historical society says you have to keep uh, X percentage of a historic building up. Um, it's protected. So they did tear a good portion of it down, but then the portion that was left did get turned into condos eventually. Yeah. Um, so, we were on tour with this band called Ann Hutchinson. We'd played some pub in Boston and uh, the Probably, kid. Who uh, put... I, I think I know exactly what you guys played. But it, sorry it, about that. It, a lot of, it was a small shitty pub, but a lot of hardcore bands played there. Yeah. Um, I was actually shocked at who I saw was going to be playing there looking at the flyers and stuff when I was there. Cause it was like, really? But it was a great show. The kid who booked the show said, yeah, you know, you're welcome to crash at our house. So we, we got to his house and it was full on party. It was just like, Oh fuck. Like the real McKenzie's were playing on the stereo and it was like, everyone was drinking. And we were just like, Oh fuck. I just, I just want a night's sleep. So we, and um, I had showed the guys in the van. I had said, well, we're playing Boston. We should, we should hit Danvers on the way. I played the movie and everyone fell in love with the movie in the van, you know, like a week prior. So we got to this guy's house and we just politely said, Oh, we'll just go get a hotel. And, we got in the van and Adam, the drummer's like, Hey, isn't that asylum you're into around here? I was like, yes, it is. It's like five miles away. So we drove there. We parked about a mile away from the entrance to the asylum. And, um, we, there's warning signs everywhere, you know, like private property, do, do not go blah, 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 blah. So we park, and there's 11 of us between both bands. And so we, we go up, there's like this winding road that goes up 
and there's like the outdoor building that was in the movie and there's like still partial graveyard and so we're we're sneaking and by the time we get halfway up um half the guys had gotten spooked and left because there was still a partial graveyard there of unmarked graves yeah. from the, the the past uh patients but there was no markers and so if we're in the dead of night i've just got a clicking point because you know cell phones weren't a thing then and i'm just clicking and pointing taking pictures we finally get up to the outer rim of the building and out in like literally nowhere all these lights turn on and there's literally guys with guns and uh uh night vision goggles oh man wow we're we're talking like it was so i apparently after the movie came out so many people were dumbasses like us and tried to sneak onto the premises that i don't know if it's the city or the state or whoever paid on-site security to be there so they had filmed and watched us snuck up and so they they took us down at gun literally at gunpoint oh my God, to, the, to, to the street where there was four squad cars waiting for us the sheriff and this guy was like the sheriff uh was he was pretty like he was like stereotypical what i would consider like a southern sheriff <laughs> that you'd see in a movie like he definitely did not like us. He's like, and we got boys there. ain't from around here. <laughs> That's essentially what it was. He's, he just kept, and so everyone's like, you're the asshole guy that got us into this. So, so I'm like talking to the guy and he's like, he's like, son, what do you got against the asylum anyway? I was like, nothing. I said, I just really like the building. I just want to check it out. So he's like, well, we know you took pictures and stuff and we have to confiscate your camera. And I was like, I was like, no way. And I literally played a game of basketball with this guy, putting it behind my back, under my leg. Where the guy's like trying to grab my camera. But somehow I charmed our way out of the city, still with my camera intact. But they police escorted us out of town. And I, we, they, they uh, took pictures of all of our driver's license and said we were banned from ever returning to the city of Danvers. <laughs> That's great. That's a great story, yes. man. Yes. Um, but that, that was a, that was a, pretty pretty damn fun time and session nine is one of my all-time favorite movies uh so likewise yes so awesome it's like a a really powerful movie and also made very with very it seemed like a very low budget film too and it somehow it had david caruso was in it you know yeah oh so good i mean when i found out that they were making a movie about the asylum because you know that's where they perfected like the the pre frontal lobe lobotomy and hydrotherapy and all this stuff. So when I found out there was a movie coming out about it that was actually filmed in it, I was like, holy shit, you know? Um, so I was super stoked. And um, even though I didn't get to sneak inside the building, I still feel like I came out with a cool story regardless. <laughs> my, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Chris, uh, lives, grew up in that area, and he lives in Beverly, which is fairly close to Danvers and he's mm-hmm. um they, he knows all the folklore about that place and everything oh cool I I even named my next pit bull after Gary Danvers oh a little bit of a fan <laughs> so did you um you know since we were kind of talking about Halloween did you um oh, yeah. see the latest installment in the Halloween <laughs> uh, trilogy here the final well, the Halloween ends yes um thoughts reflections well I will say, you know, um, I thought they started on a strong note with the, what, the 2018 one? Yeah. And then Halloween Kills comes out, and the kills are brutal, but I felt like the story was just a hot dumpster fire of nonsensical 
stuff. Um, but I was like willing to forgive it because I was like, well, you know, there's some great kills, even though Michael usually kills with a purpose. And in that movie, he was just walking into random people's houses and killing them. Um, nonetheless, I like violence when it's done well. I thought it was done well. I don't know what happened with this third movie. Um, like, <laughs> I, I still, I had to see it twice just to make sure that I didn't like it as much as I was thinking I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I watched it twice because we did an episode on Necromaniacs, my horror podcast about it. And uh, and I think time is going to be kind to it. I think it's going to age well. I could see that. You know what I mean? Like, because there's yeah. been so many horrible, I mean, even, you know, if you think about the original franchises entries, you know, like uh, Halloween yes. 4, 5, and 6, and you know, yep. things like that. Um, it's going to age better i think than some of those but um i just thought it was there was i, I just i want to know how many cooks were in the kitchen when it oh came to writing, it seemed, writing yes. a script on that one you know what i mean well but when i well, like after the first time i saw it i was like i have so many questions like <laughs> you know well one like so michael just hung out and ate rats for four years in a in a gutter and then then the 17 year old kid overpowers michael and takes his mask and then for a while, I thought that Michael was a fig figment of his imagination because, like, he's going to kill that guy, and then Michael just appears out of nowhere and finishes the job. Like, there was, and then he has his mask back. Like, there was, and then at the end, Jamie Lee Curtis just kills him. Yeah, no, like, it was it was like an easy, it was like easy money, you know, for her yes. to take him out at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah, it just, I just had so many questions about the thought, and he wasn't even in the movie more than nine minutes or some craziness. Like I just felt like, I don't know. I just don't know what they were thinking. And, and they, they concentrated so much on that kid that, yeah, I just, I don't know. And I, you know, I tried not to hate it. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more mad it made me <laughs> like, the thing I, that, I that stops me from completely hating it was the, and this is not even part of it, but the feeling I got was that they were going to go in a direction with Michael Myers where the actual person is is irrelevant. It's the mask that makes the Michael Myers. You know that, what I mean? That's what, that's what I thought, too. I thought it was going to th be a throwback to sh Halloween 3, Silver Shamrock, uh, some mystical, crazy shit, you know, and I can accept that. I would actually enjoy that a little more, but they just, if that's what they were doing, they really missed the mark. Um, apparently there's supposed to be some bonus footage on the, the Blu-ray that's supposed to show some of the alternate stuff they were going to do or something, but um, it get, definitely gets a thumbs, thumbs down from me right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, the idea of, of the mask being a, a sort of an integral part of the character, I think is like, you know, like when I forgot Corey, his name is Corey, the character. Yeah. Where it's almost like he was slowly turning into this other thing. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. I that agree. would have been really cool if like yes. he slowly was becoming something else. And then ultimately he just became yeah. the shape. You know what I mean? I think that makes way more sense than what they did. Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> and then they didn't, um, they didn't go in that direction. And I was like, oh man, you know, I don't, I think you're right. I think a big budget money movie like that i think you're right i think a lot of cooks get in the kitchen i feel like they let them do whatever they wanted with the first one the second one i feel like a couple people more got involved and then 
I feel like everyone felt like they needed to throw their ideas in, um, into the mix with this last one. And I, I, you know, I don't know, it'll be interesting to listen to the audio commentary on the Blu-ray when it comes out and see if it sheds any light yeah. onto it on a, on a different note on recent horror movies. Have you seen terrifier two? Yes, I did. I saw that in the theater actually. Me, me too. And I absolutely adore that film. Not to jump on the gravy train that everyone else in the entire world's on, but Holy God. I, I, and story doesn't make any sense, but I feel like the movie was just, um, there's just something almost magical about how rough and tumble it was. Um, uh, cause the first one, I, I forced the first one on everybody when that came out, I was like, you gotta see this movie. It's so crazy. But I feel like now the first one looks like a, a kindergartner's birthday party in comparison to the, to the new one. Yeah, the first like, one was just kind of like a run-of-the-mill, like all right, super violent. You know, it's like okay, yeah. we have a modern slasher character now, and yeah, you know that stands out. It, the second Terrifier two, man, I, I didn't even mind how long it was. I mean, I know nope. like uh-huh. looking back, reflecting on it, it's not like they could have cut scenes, but they could edit. They could have edited like maybe twenty seconds here, or thirty seconds yes. here, and yep. they could have tightened it up a little bit. But that's really all yep. I would do. Um, but the mythology. I think that they're, the world building that went on in Terrifier 2 makes me excited for the next, you know, however many movies yeah. he's going to make with that character. Well, I guess he announced the next, I guess the next movie is going to be a two-parter. Oh, cool. Um, but I, uh, if, um, not to bring back to COVID, but, uh, but I, I read an interview with him that said, um, you know, when everything got shut down during COVID, that actually made him uh elaborate some stuff rewrite some stuff work on his the special effects so i feel like that really molded this movie i think the extra time really helped him create this movie that has now solidified art the clown as an an icon of horror he is i feel that too yeah yeah he is legitimately going to be as long as they keep the franchise up for a while he is it's literally going to be he's going to be up there with all the big boys like um, which I think is fantastic. And I mean, they, they made it for 250,000. And the last thing I read is that they're at the, at 10.7 million gross uh, worldwide so far. And, and like normal people are going to see that movie too. Well, I was telling my, my wife that um, I was waiting, I was getting takeout at a sushi place here the other night and it was taking a little long. So they just sat me at a table to wait. So I'm waiting and there is like the most, uh, the most, uh, vanilla family sitting at the table. It's like typical college kid, two great looking parents, two younger looking kids, just, just the typical, you look up a typical American family in, in the dictionary and it's them. And they, well, one, uh, they start talking about this band turnstile that my wife and I have been into forever, who are now like the biggest thing in the entire universe. And they're talking about turnstiles. Like, okay, well, I get that. I mean, turnstiles on Taco Taco Bell commercials now. I, I can see that. And then they start talking about how they went to go see Terrifier Two, and oh, they were they, okay. and listening to this family talk. So it was just so funny to me thinking about how a lot of things that you know that I love could be considered mainstream at points now. It's really weird. Like um, in Terrifier Two, like when I saw that in the theater, I was like. This movie is going to be buried under a 
a, a ton of rubble so that no one can ever see it. Like I really thought it would just do the movie premiere and it would just be people like you and me talking about this movie, you know, like you got to see it. I never in my life thought it was going to be a $10 million film, like worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. And, and when you, did you, wait, did you see it in the theater or, or, or did you stream it? Oh no, I saw it. I saw it. We bought tickets the minute, um, we found out it was showing anywhere around here. Like we were like, Oh my God, you cause we believe things like that need, we need to throw money at things like that to make sure things like that keep going. Like, like when there's special events or anything, you have to support that stuff. And uh, I just, yeah, we saw it the first night it showed in the area. I, I waited a little bit long and it was extended. Right. And uh, so I live right by an AMC theater, like one of those dining theaters, like right mm-hmm. here. And mm-hmm. that's where I normally go to all my movies. But because I waited, it was like only one show in one theater in the nearby area. So I had to drive down okay. to uh, East Brunswick, which is like a, like a 30 minute drive from here. So, but I did see it in the theater and did you have any walkouts in it? No, no, but I do have a funny story about me collapsing outside the theater Oh, <laughs> when you're done. <laughs> yeah, no, we had, we had, I saw, I noticed a couple of people did walk out because they just weren't conditioned to that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I, well, I think the, when I went, um, since it was like the first showing, it, I pretty much knew a good majority of the people in the theater and it was all hardcore horror fanatics. Um, so I think everyone there had the stomach for it, but okay. then I think once, I think once the masses started going is when probably about the time you went. Yeah. Yeah. People caught up to it and they would, you know, they'd heard about it and they're like, okay, this is like everyone at the office is telling me about this. So let me go check. Yes. This out. Yeah. So that, yes. that's some of the people I saw were like that. Yeah. I, I was so humiliated at the movie when the movie was over, we got up and we were with two other friends and as we leave, I get this leg cramp that started at my groin all the way down my leg. And it was one of the most painful things I've ever had happen, totally unexplained. And I ended up pretty much collapsing in the hallway as you walk out. And my wife said all the blood ran out of my face. And I did. I felt super nauseous from the pain. And so I'm, I'm leaning up against this wall, sitting on the floor. And one guy, and people are just walking by like, whoa. And this one guy walks by and goes, guess the 1313 guy can't handle those horror movies and <laughs> and and i was in so much pain i was like like crap like i was trying to yell like crap that's <laughs> awesome because i was like but everyone walked and so i think i i have a feeling there's many stories about people who saw me not being able to handle terrifier 2 as they left the movie <laughs> <laughs> that's a story and it was so it was so awful it was so embarrassing <laughs> getting old sucks oh dude tell me about it (laughs) (laughs) um well dude thanks for uh thanks for coming on the show and um, oh man it's my pleasure yeah this is great it's great catching up man and and, like definitely we should we need to stay in better better contact with each other oh yeah no it's great um yeah i'm definitely excited to hear when you're going to be coming back (laughs) hell yeah all right thanks for listening everyone and once again terry thank you very much no thanks a lot dude Burning bright, I'm the face of the night.